Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode is going to be on modal collapse arguments and uh, the collapse of modal collapse arguments. I have with me Joe Schmid, and we're going to be looking at his forthcoming paper, The Fruitful Death of Modal Collapse Arguments. And it is really good. I'm not just blowing smoke. I really love it. I think... It's going to be used in theology courses, in maybe philosophy courses if they take God a little bit more seriously, but uh, it's awesome. It's really good. Can't wait for it. Beforehand, uh, I got to thank the Patreon patrons. You guys are awesome. Seriously appreciate it. More and more have been joining. I really, really appreciate that. Looking to do this more uh, as a full-time gig. If I can, that would be fantastic. And you patrons are making it happen. So if you've benefited from this podcast, please consider becoming a patron. Another way you can support the podcast is to subscribe on YouTube and to hit the notification bell so you're updated every time I put out a video. Try to do two a week, um, but if you're a patron, you can get early access to them. Right now, I think I have four or five like backlogged or, or hidden behind the, the Patreon wall. So go check that out. And then uh, a third way you can support is go to Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review and a comment. Super easy, super quick, and it does a lot for the algorithms and helps me out. Please do that. That'd be huge. All right. Without further ado, let's bring Joe in because I'm really excited for this one. Joe, man, thanks so much for making time and coming back on the podcast. Yeah, no, I'm super excited for this. This was a fun paper to write. And, you know, I love your podcast. It's similar to my channel. We both watch each other's channels, which I love. So, so yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, dude, so you you work a lot on like phaser. That's like uh, you do a lot on, on phaser's arguments. How did you get into modal collapse arguments? Yeah, so it was mainly, I mean, it was mainly just being introduced to the models of God debate, you know? So, I mean, I started when I was much younger. I mean, I was interested in apologetics and philosophy of religion and all these other sorts of things, questions pertaining to God. And that was mainly focused on arguments for and against God's existence in my sort of philosophical infancy, as it were. But as I grew older and I got more into like the field and studying further, I came to realize just the centrality of all these questions about not so much even arguments for and against God's existence, but like what God would be like if God were to exist and like which model of God is the best model of God. Mm -hmm. Different arguments either presuppose one model of God to the, you know, exclusion of others or might, uh, you know, pose challenges for one model of God that don't pose challenges for other ones and so on. So it's like, it's really interesting because someone might not notice that they are leveling an argument for God's existence in this domain from abstracta, say, but then if they turn around and level a different argument for God's existence, and it's for maybe like a super duper high octane classical theism, on the other hand, they might not realize that these might have some tension between them. I'm not claiming that they do in fact have intention between them, but my point is just that I've come to see the centrality of considerations of models of God to philosophy of religion debates. So that's really why I've moved into it. Yeah, man, that's that's awesome. I've had a similar uh, experience in considering some of the cumulative case guys and saying, "Hey, exactly what you said." And and a big one for me is um, um, the Lord of Non Contradiction. I love that paper. Um, I know Phaser has his own kind of version of it, but 
if that implies that God has parts and those parts are his thoughts, then that's a problem for anyone who wants to hold the divine simplicity. And that's kind of my way in. But yeah, like if you're going to mount a communal case, it ought to be coherent. The, all the, the arguments ought not argue for a different conception of God. Um, and if they do, then you should have a principled reason for why you think that's okay. And mm-hmm. that, that's really interesting. So that's cool that that's how you got into it. Um, how how much like study? So did you take a break from your other stuff? Or it's always amazing to see your output. But how did you just come up with this paper at this time? Yeah. So actually, this is a really interesting story for this paper. So over the summer, I was working on. Okay. So let me step back. So I have this series on my channel, Majesty of Reason. I, I have this series, and the series is arguments for classical theism and arguments against classical theism. I did two episodes on arguments for classical theism. They're e- <laughs> first one's like three hours long. The second one's like three hours long or something. And then that's the arguments for classical theism. And I'm currently on a three-part series on arguments against classical theism. And I'm not, you know, I'm just mainly giving a survey of the literature, and I'm indeed criticizing some of the arguments on both sides and favoring uh, other arguments. So uh, it's certainly... I'd like to say uh, uh, a balanced uh, presentation with, of course, some of my own arguments sprinkled in and my own, you know, uh, views. But mostly it's a survey and I'm giving people resources and whatnot. But my point is just that uh, one of the arguments I develop therein in the arguments against classical theism part one is a providential collapse argument where I, I try to argue that there might be some tension between uh, a view of God on which God is identical to all of God's acts on the one hand, and on the other hand, God's being providential over which precise creation obtains. Because it seems as though under that view, right, you can go across any world whatsoever, any possible world among the infinite array of possible worlds, and you won't be able to point to any fact about God that was different across those worlds right. that could explain why one of those obtained particularly, why that creation obtained particularly among the infinite array. So it seems as though some creation just happens into being with a dependence uh, relation on God. Mm-hmm. And so that really got me thinking about this kind of providential collapse argument. So I started working on a paper on providential collapse. Uh, but as I was developing that paper, I was like, man, I, I, I had to spell out the mode of collapse debate first and explain what moves had to be made in order to get to the, you know, kind of set up the stage as to how God can't be, can't, can't be variant across possible worlds and how God's identical to all of his acts, right? Mm-hmm. And how that entails indeterminism. And then I'd have to go from indeterminism to this kind of providence problem. And I realized that I wasn't able to fit that all in one paper. <laughs> so, so I had to take all of that stuff out on indeterminism and like, you know, showing that, the if and only if by conditional in the paper that, that we're about to talk about. Mm-hmm. So I had to take all that stuff out and put it in its own paper. And then... I basically just have to summarize what I say in this paper in my other paper on providential yeah. collapse. And then I develop that argument uh, further once I get to the indeterminate indeterministic link. So, yeah. well, man, that's huge. And you've actually packed a lot into this paper as well. You said a lot in not a ton of words, but you said a lot. It's really uh, fascinating. Again, man, I think that this paper should be used. It's to my mind, the best paper on uh, modal collapse I've ever read. So that's, that's awesome. That's that really my heart. Oh, it should, man. That's that's it's pretty wild. I know. I actually don't know how you feel about this, but being so young, I'm sure people always say this. Probably so annoying. I'm sorry, I have to do it, but it's it's pretty amazing that you've written like, I think the best paper on modal collapse, and you're an undergrad in philosophy. So again, dude, props. That's huge. Um, Let's get into it. So, uh, actually, one thing beforehand. So, it's cool because you're giving the you're giving the uh, classical theist like a hand up from Mullins who just knocked them down. Uh, 
but you have like one of those Joker hand zappers in there and you still are zapping them on their way up. Yeah. I love <laughs> so that I analogy. That's great. that's great. Yeah. So I think that's, that's good for, for anyone listening. That's what he does. So, so don't be too yeah, disappointed. No, it's funny. I told you in our direct messages that like, this might, this is some of the trouble of being an agnostic. It's like, sometimes both sides are happy with you because you're like criticizing the other side, but it's like both sides also kind of hate you because you know, I, on my channel, I, I discuss arguments and I like say, hey, this piece is evidence for God's existence. And I'm like, yes, it is. And I'm defending the argument. And, and another time I'm like, hey, this piece is evidence against God's, against God's existence, right? And so, yeah, it's it's rough, but hey, I love it. And uh, if you don't ruffle feathers, what are you doing? Well, dude, and actually, so it's kind of an example to the rest of us where you can ignore arguments that go against your position. And a lot of us do. We actually do that. And you don't do that because you're not. You don't really have a, a dog in the fight. A yeah, I mean, I suffer race. like as with all humans, right? I mean, I suffer from cognitive biases and so mm-hmm. on. Um, but yeah, I mean, part of philosophy, really, for as as you know, and as most of your listeners know, but part of philosophy that helps is that it at least helps you like mitigate that. Um, mm-hmm. Now, obviously, it doesn't doesn't remove it, but yeah, and, and what helps even further is potentially, you know, really trying to take, I don't know, a, a more epistemically humble position when you're coming to some of these debates it's like hey i might not have all the answers i you know i'm not certain in some of these views like i'm genuinely open to to being wrong and these sorts of things and it's liberating right it's liberating it allows you to really look at both sides that kind of that kind of mindset has led me to agnosticism at least and uh, my agnosticism has also not really i found that it doesn't it doesn't make me super entrenched in one position like a theist camp and defending like i must defend theism against these internet atheists or other sorts of things like that you know um so it does help with that but you know as with all people there is some of that um cognitive bias and whatnot but you know we all just got to work through that right yeah and even even though you know i'm i'm a theist and committed christian theist uh but i've come as i study more and more philosophy i've come to be excited about arguments uh because I'm like, are you going to make a cool argument? Are you going to make it interesting? Wow, that's sweet. Okay, yeah, it's devastating. I don't like that. But I'm really impressed by this guy. I'm really excited by this lady. I'm, it's cool because you start to see people's mind and work and what you can do with reason. So it's it's exciting. Let's let's jump in here. So the the actual order of the, the paper is super clear. It's, super, it's like a, a good progression. So I thought we could just follow that. Um, but first... First, you lay out the the simple modal collapse argument. Can can you um, repersonate that for us? Yeah. So for the audience, what is a modal collapse? We should probably start with that. So a modal collapse, modality just has to do with possibility and necessity, right? So I can possibly take a drink right now. And indeed, I'm going to actually take a drink right now. So bada bing, bada boom, there's a drink, uh, it was possible. And then, you know, that possibility became actual. Okay, so we got possibilities, we got necessities, right? So some people think that one plus one is necessarily two, some people think that the number one necessarily exists, like it cannot fail to exist, it must exist, it has a robust grip on existence, as it were. And other things are possible, but they're not actual, or at least we think, right? So presumably, my parents could have had another sibling, and I, you know, I would have been accompanied by uh, a fourth sibling in addition to my uh, three other siblings, but they didn't. And so this is a a possible but non-actual thing, uh, if we can, you know, speak in those loose terms. So, you know, this is just the notions of possibility and necessity. Now, a modal collapse occurs if all those, all those distinctions between possibility and necessity and these sorts of things, they collapse down to one 
necessity. So <laughs> basically everything would be necessary. Every truth is a necessary truth. Every being is a necessary being. And what do I mean by a necessary being or a necessary truth? It's a being or a truth that cannot fail to exist or cannot fail to be true. It must be true. It must exist. Uh, there is no possible way that reality could be such that things were different. So <laughs> You know, philosophers like to speak of possible worlds, and I use that as just a heuristic device, right? In this debate, I'm not trying to ontologically commit to the robust existence of possible worlds. But as philosophers use it, a possible world is just a complete or total or global way that reality could be. So, yeah, basically modal collapse happens when there's only one possible world. We typically think that there are many, 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 many possible worlds. Um, yeah, presumably I could be sitting like one inch to the left or, you know, things like that. Um, presumably we could have started this call five seconds earlier than we in fact did and so on. So, yeah, a modal collapse, that would be pretty devastating if it occurred. Uh, typically, we think that it's pretty obvious that things could have been otherwise. I like to give an example of me, like, wiggling my finger, right? Like, presumably, I could just wiggle it, like, one millimeter more. Like, mm. I, that just seems so self-evident. Or, like, blinking, right? So, today, I've blinked some thousands of times. Maybe, let's say, I don't know how many, 5,412. Like, surely that could have been 5,411, right? I mean, mm. it'd be really weird if that was, like, the metaphysically necessary truth of reality. Um, so yeah, anyway, modal collapse is pretty devastating if it happens. God doesn't seem to be free over his creative act. We don't, we don't have the ability to do otherwise. Lots of our modal intuitions are just systematically false. Uh, so yeah, it's pretty bad. So there's this debate, there, or there's this argument against classical theism that it entails modal collapse. So that would be pretty devastating. Mm -hmm. So the simple modal collapse argument, I break it down really into two kind of versions, as it were. And one version is from the, what I call the intersubstitutability of identicals version. And then the other is the Leibniz's law version. So I guess I'll just give the kind of uh, go through the let, let's just focus on I'll turn it over to you once I just sketch the intersubstitutability of identicals. Yeah, yeah. version. Okay, so the <clears throat> basics of the intersubstitutability of uh, identicals version is that, like, hey, under classical theism, God is identical to each of God's acts, right? Because classical theism is committed to the doctrine of divine simplicity, which says that all that is in God is God. And that's an is of identity. Mm -hmm. And so all of God's actions and properties and whatnot, if he has them, they're going to have to be identical to him. So God's going to be identical to his act of creation thereby. But if God's identical to his act of creation, I mean, it's necessarily the case that God exists, right? God's a necessary being. And so if it's necessarily the case that God exists and God's identical to God's creative act, then surely we could just intersubstitute those, right? God and God's creative act. We can substitute those when in our claim that necessarily God exists, right? So if it's necessarily the case that God exists and God just is the divine creative act, well, then surely it's necessarily the case that the divine creative act exists, right? God's creative act exists. But if it's necessarily the case that God's divine creative act exists, it seems as though this is the only possible world that, that exists because God's, God's creative act encompasses everything in reality, any positive ontological item distinct from God, <laughs> anything that has reality apart from God. And so if that exists of necessity, right, it would seem as though this is the only possible world. So that's basically the intersubstitutability of identicals version. It, it just reasons from, I guess, premise one, necessarily God exists. Premise two, God is identical to God's act of creation. And then conclusion, necessarily God's act of creation exists. And that's supposed to entail the fatalistic result. So, yeah.
Yeah, and uh, I, I think that's a really helpful way to think about it. Did you did you coin that term, the inter uh, substitution ability of identicals? So I didn't I didn't quite coin it. Um, I mean, maybe I think this is the first time I've seen this phrase come up in the modal collapse debate, but it's certainly mm-hmm. not a coined term. Like, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, but but insofar as we're we're speaking of modal collapse terms, mm. yes. Okay, so the way you get around this one is saying uh, for for the classical theists, they can say God's act is uh, indeterministic uh, in it. God indeterministically produces uh, his effects. And so, boom, no no modal collapse. Is that right? Yeah. So basically, you could go a few ways here to, to criticize it. I mean, one way is just a point about logic, but the point about logic or like philosophy of language and logic, but mm-hmm. that kind of piggybacks off of indeterministic causation, which is the metaphysical undergirding. So I kind of want to make the point about logic first, and then yeah. we'll get into the, is this the in, in, intention with an S. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I'll try to explain it as best as I can. Uh, This is probably the worst thing that you can explain in like a podcast. (laughs) It's like, hey, everyone, let me tell you about intentional context or rather referentially opaque context, wherein co-referring expressions cannot be substituted without potentially changing the truth value of the sentence. Anyway, it's rough, but I'll try. I'll try. I'll be brief. (laughs) So what we have here, let's take an example, right? Clark Kent and Superman. Okay. These two expressions, Clark Kent and Superman, those two expressions, they refer to the same thing, right? Clark Kent is Superman. There's one thing there. It's not, these aren't distinct things. So Clark Kent is Superman. But here's a really striking fact. Lois Lane believes that Clark Kent cannot fly, but she does not believe that Superman cannot fly. Mm -hmm. That's really weird, right? Because... Clark Kent is Superman. So you'd think that you'd think that you'd be able to substitute those for one another in those sentences, right? But yet you can't, right? You can't substitute one phrase, Clark Kent, for another, Superman, without changing the truth value of that sentence that Lois Lane believes that such and such Kent. cannot fly. Yeah. yeah. So that's really weird. Um, but it's just, it's the truth of the matter. So philosophers have called contexts that don't permit of this intersubstitution of these expressions that refer to the same thing, they call contexts that don't permit of that, they call those intentional contexts with an Mm -hmm. S. And by don't permit of it, I just mean that they don't allow you to do that without potentially changing the truth value of the sentence as a whole. So in other words, if you do that, you run the risk of, of changing the truth value of the sentence as a whole, in which case you can't substitute them in a valid manner, right? Validity is necessarily truth preserving. Whereas right. when, when you substitute them in intentional contexts, you actually can potentially change the truth value of mm-hmm. the sentence as a whole. So with that in mind, that's, that's an intentional context, context deriving from a propositional attitude expression, right? Lois mm-hmm. Lane believes something. But this also comes up in modal contexts, contexts having to do with necessity and possibility operators. So if we say, for instance, that necessarily God exists, well, whenever we have a necessity operate out in front, that actually does introduce a, uh, an intentional context. Mm-hmm. The reasons are a little technical, and I, I'd honestly just have to, to um, point people to the paper, but I'll give, a, I'll give a, just an analogy. So imagine that I say that... Um, necessarily uh, the number eight exists, okay? So suppose we're mathematical plateness and we think that necessarily eight exists. And then number two, well, wait, the number 
Eight is the number of the of the planets, right? Eight is the number of planets. The number of planets is eight. Those are actually co-referring, right? The number of planets just is eight, right? There are eight planets. And if that's the case, if the number of planets is eight, and that's an is of identity, well, then you, you would be able to infer, if, if we were thinking along these lines of intersubstitutability of identicals, you would be able to infer that necessarily the number of planets is eight, right? Because it's identical to the number right. eight, we can, and we said that necessarily eight exists. So then you'd be able to conclude that necessarily the number of planets is eight, which means that there couldn't have been seven planets, which is like, <laughs> yes, there could have, right? So, so that kind of shows you that whenever you have this necessity operator out in front, you can't intersubstitute co-referring expressions without potentially changing the truth value in question. And when you're not able to do that, that's because one of the expressions rigidly designates the thing in question, mm -hmm. whereas the other one non-rigidly designates the thing in question. Now, let me explain these terms. Rigid designation occurs when some expression picks out one and the same thing across all worlds in which that thing exists. So for instance, if I say, or I give the, I have an expression Aristotle, I'm picking out the dude, the man, in every world in which the, that person exists. Even if he's named Shmeristotle in some other world, the point is, is that when I use the expression in this world, I'm picking out that dude, the same dude across all worlds in which that guy exists. Mm -hmm. But suppose I say the most famous student of Plato, that expression, the most famous student of Plato. Socrates taught Plato taught Aristotle. Yes, okay. So, <laughs> sorry, I have to do SPA, SPA, Socrates taught Plato taught Aristotle. Okay, so um, that expression, the most famous student of Aristotle, or of Plato, excuse me, that doesn't pick out Aristotle in all possible worlds, right? It, it picks out Aristotle in the actual world because it is actually the case that Aristotle is indeed the most famous student of Plato. But in another world, maybe Aristotle unfortunately died as a baby, right. and maybe some other person was the philosopher who was taught by Aristotle and er, by Plato and became super duper famous of, because of that. So like this phrase does not pick out one and the same person across all possible worlds. It picks out Socrates, er, Aristotle in the actual world. It picks out someone else in another world and so on. So in that sense, it's non-rigid. <laughs> and when you have a non-rigid, when you have a non-rigid expression and a rigid expression flanking an identity claim, you can't actually intersubstitute them for one another in, uh, in a modal context with a necessity operator out in front because that might potentially change the truth value. So for instance, um, well, anyway, uh, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. So that, that's the technical reason why uh, the argument doesn't work. But here's the non-technical reason, right? The non-technical reason is because suppose that uh, God's act of creation indeterministically gives rise to its effects. Well, then the mere fact that God's act of creation necessarily exists doesn't entail modal collapse. Right. Why? Because... Even though God's act of creation, the entity that we're referring to there necessarily exists, it doesn't necessarily bring about creation. The link there is indeterministic. That is to say, the cause can obtain without the effect obtaining. So there are some possible worlds in which the effect obtains, there are other possible worlds in which it doesn't obtain. And so, merely from the fact that God's act of creation, what that expression picks out, Merely from the fact that that necessarily exists, the being necessarily exists, you don't get modal collapse because there's only an indeterministic link there. Uh, and so, yeah, that, that, that's, base, that's, the, that's the metaphysics behind it. The logic behind it, the, okay, let, I'll, let me just connect the two for the audience. Yeah, please. I'll, turn, I'll turn it back to you once I, once I finish this. Keep, keep it's, going, it's, it's great. <laughs> it's too complicated, but um, the, there's a link between these, right? Because think about it. The reason why... God's act of creation only non-rigidly picks out God 
is because the link between God and creation is indeterministic. Mm -hmm. The link between God and creation is indeterministic. That means that creation comes about in some worlds, but not in others. But precisely because of that, God's satisfying the description being a divine creative act because it's only an indeterministic link there that picks God at, that picks out God in some worlds, but not all worlds, right? Because mm -hmm. there's an indeterministic link in some worlds. Creation comes about in other words, in other worlds, it doesn't, in which case in some worlds, God satisfies the description being a divine creative act. Whereas in other worlds, he doesn't satisfy the description. And so that means that that description is non-rigid, yeah. right? It's non-rigid. And so that's, that's the connection between the metaphysics and the logic there, uh, or the philosophy of language, if you want to put it like that, it's precisely because the link there is indeterministic that you have a non-rigid designation here. And it's precisely because you have a non-rigid designation here that you can't substitute it in for God uh, into a, a, a context where you have a necessity operator out in front uh, because it only contingently designates God. It designates God by way of or by means of effects that come about. Yeah. So I hope that that connection kind of clicked for people. <laughs> yeah, I think it did. Yeah, it, oh, I hope it did. I can't really speak for anyone else. Um, it reminds me of, of a conversation I had with, with uh, Dr. Stephen Nemesh, uh, now doctor, uh, where he, he goes, he uses the same kind of reasoning, I think, to, to reason against uh, Mullins and says that God indeterministically acts. And I remember just being like, there's problems with that, right? And that's the, the hand buzzer uh, that, that we can bring up at the end. So maybe we could leave that unless, do you think it'd be more natural now or should we, should we come I think we back? should leave it. I think we okay. should leave okay. it. Okay, nice, nice, nice. All right. So let's let's go on to the Leibniz, Leibniz's law uh, version. Yeah. So Leibniz's law for people who don't know just says that, hey, for, any, for anything X and anything Y, if X is numerically identical with Y, that is if, if we're just talking about one thing here, if X is numerically identical with Y, then for any feature or property F, right, if X has that property, well, then so does Y, because they're one and the same thing, right? So this, this principle is not really, this, it's not really controversial in philosophy at all. Um, yeah, it, this is pretty much universally accepted. So uh, this has formed the basis of what I call a second version of the simple modal collapse argument. And... How does it go? Well, it's basically just saying, okay, well, you classical theists say that uh, because you have divine simplicity on your plate, you say that God is identical to God's creative act, right? But God is a necessary being, and so he has this feature of necessary existence, if we want to put it that way. Mm -hmm. And because God is identical with his divine creative act, you could just kind of, per Leibniz's law, it simply follows that God's divine creative act exists of metaphysical necessity as well. And if God's divine creative act exists of metaphysical necessity, doesn't that mean, doesn't, isn't that just to say that creation exists of metaphysical necessity? Um, uh, sorry, I, I'm getting a little bit like, um, what should I say? A little bit loose and, and imprecise here because this is precisely where the argument fails. <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I'm trying to say like, yeah, they're trying to say, hey, if it's if the divine creative act is a necessary being, it has necessary existence, just like God, because they're identical and we have Leibniz's law, well, then surely creation itself is necessary because creation itself is a result of God's creative act. And we just said that that's a necessary being, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the Leibniz's law version. Yeah. And then um, similar, similar response, right? Indeterminism. Uh, it, it it goes against. Um, let me let me look here. The uh, the well, I'm looking at at Mullins's right now because 
I don't want to spoil anything, but um, do you, why don't you lay it out? Cause I'm going to totally yeah. spoil it. Yeah, no. So here again, there is the logical or the, the, the philosoph like the philosophy of language or logical response. And it's undergirded by a more metaphysical response. And, you know, being a, I like metaphysics, so I'm kind of more interested in that aspect of it. But, um, I'll just do the like the logic one quick and, and dirty as it were uh, first, and then I'll go to the, the metaphysical response to this. But the logical point is just like this argument, it's only going to get you to the claim that the thing that's picked out by the divine creative act or God's act of creation, the thing that's picked out by that is a necessary being. Mm -hmm. But what doesn't follow from that is that the way we pick that out successfully picks that thing out in all possible worlds in exactly that way. Which so, would like, make it necessary yeah, if it yeah, were. Yeah. So yeah. like really all this argument is getting you to is that um, the, the being that we're picking out by this expression, the divine creative act is a necessary being. But what you need to infer if you want to say that uh, God creates in every possible world is that the description being a divine creative act is such that God necessarily satisfies that description, right? If right, he just right. contingently satisfies that description, you don't get modal collapse. He's only contingently satisfying that description. Yeah. So, and again, there's a metaphysical reason for this. The reason is because God's God, that entity that we're picking out by our various phrases, that only indeterministically produces its effects. Mm -hmm. And so if we are picking it out and we're, you know, designating it in some way by means of its effects, saying like, oh, well, it's a creative act. Well, that's only going to pick it out in some worlds and not others. And so we're not designating it necessarily. We're just designating it in a contingent manner, as it were. Yeah. So in order to infer from the Leibniz's law version, modal collapse, you'd have to add some premise to the effect of the divine creative act designates God in every possible world. And no classical theist is, is going to accept that, right? I mean, that's right. that's part of the, that's like the very issue in question. Whether yeah, it's or not, just begging the question again. Yeah, yeah, whether or not the divine creative act picks out God in all possible worlds in which God exists. Mm -hmm. So that's the basic um, problem with, with that argument. But now we could probably go on to, to Mullins' new formulation. Yeah, and so Mullins, um, and, and I should say, like, the you guys got to read the paper because um, Joe does a really great job of motivating these arguments and strengthening them, strengthening the arguments uh, so they make even more sense and then kind of slapping them back down. But um, that's also what, what Ryan Mullins, who's been on the show twice, uh, and he's been on Joe's show a ton, like, this dude's awesome. We love him. He, he has this new formulation. Um, I don't know, Joe, should I read it? I have it in front of me. Yeah, you can read it. I think that would be helpful. Okay. So um, I'll just, I'm not going to read the premises because it sounds weird, but M1 and then it goes all the way down to M9. So if God intentionally acts to actualize this world, then this world cannot possibly fail to obtain. If God's intentional act to actualize this world is absolutely necessary, then this world exists of absolute necessity. God's existence is absolutely necessary. Anything that is identical to God's existence must be absolutely necessary. All of God's intentional actions are identical to each other, such that there is only one divine act. God's one divine act is identical to God's existence. God's one divine act is absolutely necessary, from the premise three through six. And God's intentional act to actualize this world is absolutely necessary, so... This world exists of absolute necessity. Mm -hmm. And then, so you've you've said in your paper that uh, Mullins commits the same mistake here in this in this new formulation as the Leibniz laws Leibniz's law model um, because of the second premise: if God's intentional act to actualize this world is absolutely necessary, 
then this world exists of absolute necessity. Mm -hmm. Can you explain that? Yeah. So the basic idea here, like you said, I'm going to target that second premise, M2, or at least with my classical theist hat on, right? right? Meta point for the audience. Whenever you're criticizing an argument, you have to think about what the person who doesn't antecedently agree with the argument, what they would respond, like what they think. Um, so you have to put on their hat and you have to say, well, hold on a second. Like, would I ever grant this premise if I didn't already accept the conclusion, say? Right. So with my classical theist hat on, I would say, um, M2 is the one that I would reject. And yeah, you said it right. Like M2 for the audience is just that if God's intentional act to actualize this world is absolutely necessary, then this world exists of absolute necessity. So what I say or what I argue in my paper is that that's going to be a non sequitur by the classical theists lights. So all we can infer from the fact that the divine intentional act to actualize this world is absolutely necessary right, is that the entity designated by the divine intentional act to actualize this world exists of metaphysical necessity. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's that's true under classical theism, right? Um, God is that thing that is picked out by the divine intentional act to actualize this world, right? And God, of course, the entity designated by that exists of metaphysical necessity. Yeah. But you need more. You need more to entail that uh, it's necessarily the case that in every possible world, there's a divine intentional act to actualize this particular world. You need more to entail that than the mere fact that the entity designated by the divine intentional act to actualize this world is a necessary being. Because you also need it to be true that this mode of designation, this mode of signification, th this description, the divine intentional act to actualize this world, designates God, that necessary being, in every possible world, right. right? Because if it doesn't designate God in every possible world, if it designates God in only some worlds and not others, then it's only contingent designation. And so you're not able to infer that um, something designated by it exists in all possible worlds. And so you debar the inference to creation existing in all possible worlds. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, um, right, that's precisely what we needed to demonstrate, right? It's the, the, the question, the very question at issue is whether or not God's intentional act to actualize this world designates God in all possible worlds. But yet that's what Mullins needs to add to make this premise a non, a not a non sequitur, right? But mm -hmm. of course, that's the very question at issue, right? The very question at issue is whether or not the divine intentional act to create this world picks out or designates God in all possible worlds. So basically, I argue that um, it succumbs to the same fate as the Leibniz's law version. Now, I would like to give a kind of parody argument because mm -hmm. I want to show like, like this isn't just logic chopping BS. Um, like you can run a parody argument against any non-classical theistic view of God as well. So here's a kind of parody argument. And all these premises are basically on epistemic par with uh, what Mullen says. So here, here's the argument. M1 star, the like the fact that, or the statement that the infallibly omnipotent creator of this world exists, that statement necessarily entails that this world exists, okay? <laughs> uh, now, that's that just follows from the infallibility of omnipotence, and that's clearly on par with Mullins's M1, right? So I'm just giving a little star to these premises. Right. So, okay, that's M1 star. Now, M2 star, right? If the infallibly omnipotent creator of this world exists of absolute necessity, then this world exists of absolute necessity. Now, eventually, I'm going to go on to challenge this argument. But the point to see here is that um, 
the, the, this is like on epistemic par with what Mullen says. We are designating something in such a way as to entail that this world exists. And then we're going on to say that that phrase, the thing that we're designating, the infallible omnipotent creator of this world, we're going on to say that that thing exists necessarily. Hmm. And we're designating it in a way that strictly entails this actual world. Okay, so that's M2 star. M3 star, God exists of absolute necessity. M4 star, if God is identical to X, then X exists of absolute necessity. That's just Leibniz's law. Mm -hmm. M5 star, God is identical to the infallibly omnipotent creator of this world. I mean, obviously, God is the infallibly omnipotent creator of this world. It's not as though there's some other being that, that, that's that. So um, that's M5 star. M6 star, so the infallibly omnipotent creator of this world exists of absolute necessity. That just follows. But then once you combine that with that M2 star, then you just get that this world exists of absolute necessity, which is yeah. just the fatalistic conclusion. So really... Um, I mean, as the, you know, the audience, I've already said that M2 is M2 star is what I'm going to challenge, really. But it, the, the reason why the non-classical theist has to reject that is essentially the same reason that the classical theist is going to reject Mullins' M2. And the reason is because that way that we're designating God, like in this case, the infallibly omnipotent creator of this world, that only contingently picks out God. It only non-rigidly designates God. It only, it's, it, God yeah. only contingently satisfies that description. Yeah. And so you cannot infer that this world is metaphysically necessary from the mere fact that God, a necessary being, is identical to the divine creative act, or in, in the case of the non-classical theism, God is identical to the infallibly omnipotent creator of this world. Because that phrase, that expression, does not necessarily pick out God in all possible worlds. It just picks right. them out in some. And so you're not going to be able to deliver that fatalistic conclusion. Yeah. And so really, that's, that's kind of how I, how I go about it. Um, you, you just need to add this further premise. You need this further premise to the effect of the way that we're designating this thing is such as to necessarily designate that thing. It picks out that thing in every possible world in which it exists. And that's the very claim at issue. So right. yeah, that's really what I argue. It's so good, man. And so some people are super duper lost, but you can listen at slow speed or you can, <laughs> you can read, if you read the paper, honestly, some, some things are harder to talk about. Um, but I'm tracking with it. I'm loving it. It's really, it's really helpful that you did go into the logic and the, the semantics as well as the, the metaphysics. Um, I think too often that hasn't happened. Uh, I love reading Donald Davidson and often he does not get into the metaphysics and it's like, dude, you used the word intentional with an S <laughs> just one too many times and you lost me. Um, yeah. Cause I don't know what we're talking about anymore, but you did a great job of, of showing both there. And I think that's really interesting. I got to ponder on it more because I think you're, I think you're right, but it's it seems once you said that, it seems obvious mm -hmm. and it's kind of crazy. It's kind of yeah. like, well, how is this sitting here? And I don't I didn't see it before. Yeah, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but like um, I don't hate to say it, but I, I, I sort of <laughs> hate, I sort of hate to say it. But it's like this paper is one of the papers where I, I just I see that it's so crystal clearly true, like what I'm writing, some of the things that I'm writing, like I could just see that this is the way that classical theists have to and can get out of the modal collapse argument. They have to go these ways in order to avoid it. I mean, it's just like a matter of, of logic and philosophy of language. And then there's a metaphysics undergirding it. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I'm just, I can just see that this is the way that the whole debate has to go, essentially. Um, it sounds like an arrogant claim, but it's like, I think that it's, it's really true. And if you read the paper, I think you'll probably see that as well. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, again, um, yeah, anyway. Well, okay, so let's, because uh, the, the hand zapping is close, but we got one more thing. <laughs> We're getting there close, yes. <laughs> um, Powers-based modal collapse argument. Um, 
fill us in, man. This one, this one was new to me. Maybe I'd read about it or read, read uh, in Mullins or something, but, but the, even the language is, is kind of new to me. Yeah. So I was a little frustrated because I'm like in the literature, I, I mean, maybe someone has addressed this in the literature, but I'm not aware of many. Um, now, obviously, you know, I, I, I didn't do like a super duper comprehensive survey of the sure. literature. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty well up to date on the modal collapse literature, but not many people, it seems to me, have been addressing this particular argument. And I was like, okay, I need to give the class, I need to show how classical theists can avoid this because I think they can. Um, but yeah, the argument, is, this one is based not on God's being identical with his creative acts. So this, the ones that we were considering earlier were based on identity claims, right? right. You know, the intersubstitutability of identicals. And then the other one was Leibniz's law, which is identity. This one is based on God's being purely actual. So he has no potentiality for change. And he has no potentiality for being cross-world different or cross-world yeah. variant. So this is, of course, a commitment of, of classical theism. Uh, you know, everyone recognizes that. But um, this has formed the basis of one of Mullins' arguments, modal collapse arguments against classical theism. According to, Mull according to Mullins, uh, who, yeah, like I should say to the audience, you know, Mullins is like one of my closest friends. And so I, you know, I don't do any of this in, in terms of polemicism. I mean, I think it's, I was telling um, uh, Parker right before this, like, I think criticizing our friends as arguments is like the, the best way to serve them, essentially. So mm -hmm. especially if you do it in like, you know, uh, a love oriented way rather than like knocking them down. So yeah. I wanted to say that, but, um, but yeah, so Mullins argues that this is incompatible with God's freedom. Right. So like if, if God is free, it seems as though, God created this world, but he could have refrained from creating this world, or he could have actualized a different world. He could have created a different world, but then surely God has unactualized potential, right? right. He could have been the creator of another world. And that means that his potential to be the creator of another world went unactualized. So surely yeah. he has unactualized potential. And so then he's not purely actual contra DDS and the doctrine of explicitly and contra classical theism. Well, so, and, uh, and if there's a, if there's a innumerable amount of, or a, a huge amount, then there's like a lot of potential. And once you get a little potential in God, <laughs> yeah. then you have actus Pierce kind of out the door, but, but even making it, there's a lot of potential he could have created. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you've got potential and you've got potential and <laughs> yes. you've got, it's like potential all over the place, but that's um, right. But yeah, so I kind of want to quote Mullins because his writing is really clear and he kind of puts it better than anyone else can. So sure. I kind of just want to quote him. So here's what he says in one of his 2013 papers. Could God have refrained from creating the universe? Well, if God is free, then it seems that the answer is obviously yes. He could have existed alone. Yet God did create the universe. If there is a possible world in which God exists alone, God is not simple. He eternally has unactualized potential. Hmm. So that's one quote. And then uh, he, I kind of want to give one more quote where he articulates this. So he says in a, well, this is his, the end of the timeless God book, which I recommend everyone read. It's a very good book. Mm -hmm. um, so he says, if God could create this universe, but chose not to, God would have an actualized potential. So in order to be pure act, God must create this universe. The same is true of any other potential universes that God might be able to create. Say it is possible to create a multiverse. Then God must create the multiverse. Otherwise, God will have unactualized potential and will not be pure act. For any possible universe that God can create, he must create. Otherwise, God will have unactualized potential. It would seem as though there would be... So I'm not quoting him anymore, okay? That's the end quote. And, and this is me speaking. It would seem as though if he didn't perform those actions, well, then there's some potential to perform those actions that he didn't actualize. So that's the idea. So 
I kind of want to formalize. Oh, do you have a question before that? Oh, Joe, it, uh, I mean, I get this. This one has always been uh, the problem of creation is is a really tough one for me. Um, and and it's, it's based on this underlying, you know, moving from act to potential uh, or potential to act. Um, I might have just forgot. Oh, yeah. So um, I wonder, I, I just think that the, the classical theist would, it's a, it's a really hard problem because it's like God, if God is act is purest, I, I always hear like the classical guys that's up in there. If God is pure act, then um, he would have to act on all of his potential. And so Mullins is saying he's not free, but this kind of still like presupposes that there was a point where God was, did have potential and, and then did act. And so then he's changing. And so I think that the classical theist would be like, well, I'm not, God's immutable. So God doesn't change. I'm hard, you know, immutability. So God can't change at all. So there's, I think they're going to say that it might just compound the the issue even further. Yeah, I was going to say Mullins is probably going to say like, you're just giving me more like risk for my mill. Like right. that's my point. He's yeah. always doing what he could po- ever possibly do. So it's yeah, like, right. it makes it worse. So you so like, like eternal creation and it, yeah. It, yeah. And he's brought that up before. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it compounds. It's rough. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, that's a really good analog as well. So like it applies not only across worlds, but as you just pointed out, like in this world, you might like this argument might even get you if it succeeds to um, eternal creation. Mm-hmm. So uh, let me um, let me uh, formalize the argument. Yeah. So I basically give a, a formalization of the paper. Um, the premises are a little wacky because, you know, in, in papers, oftentimes like one of the conventions is to not give multiple arguments each of which has like a premise one because then it's ambiguous later on in the paper whether which premise one you're referring to so you just you like number it but anyway i don't know what i'm saying i'll just just, (laughs) no that's good yeah i'll just say i'll I'll go with the the seven and eight and nine okay so premise seven this is the first premise of the argument but we're just going to say premise seven so seven if god could have done five so five i just mean any action like free the israelites or create a multiverse or refrain from creating or you know whatever so if God could have done something, if God could have done phi, but does not actually do phi, well, then God has unactualized potential. Okay, that's a premise. Uh, eight, God could have created a different universe or no universe at all, but obviously he did not actually do so. So from those, it follows that God has unactualized potential. But of course, if God has unactualized potential, then classical theism is false. So classical theism is false. So that's the argument. And basically, I give two responses to this in the paper. So the first response is that I don't think the classical theist will uh, uh, accept premise seven, but I also don't think that they should accept premise seven. And I don't think that, yeah, I I think that they're perfectly well within their epistemic rights and rejecting it. They're just going to say that, listen, God's doing something different than he actually does. That simply amounts to a different state of affairs obtaining out there with a dependence relation on God, right? Yeah. To say without further independent justification that that requires like God himself to be entitatively or intrinsically different across those worlds um, or even to have some different polyadic relational property, uh, you know, that, that, you know, connects him to those other things. To say that is just to beg the question against the classical theistic position, according to which God is absolutely invariant across these worlds, despite creation itself being variant across those worlds. Yeah. So it's basically I see it as question begging against the classical theists. They're going to say. What do you know? God, God can do something different. But what I mean by that is not that on God's end, he can perform some like action of his on his end that would be different across worlds. No, what we mean by God can do something different 
is that different state of affairs can obtain with a dependence relation on God. And as I point out later in the paper, this again goes back to the metaphysics, right? This is, this is the indeterministic causal link. It's yeah. precisely because the causal link between God, his act, and creation is indeterministic uh, that you don't need to have some kind of cross-world variance on God's end uh, mm-hmm. in order for God to be able to do otherwise. So um, that's my first response. So I'll turn it over to you if you have any comments. No, that's good. I, I think I think you said in the paper that uh, in order to uh, push back against this classical theist response, you'd have to argue against libertarian free will. Is that is that right? Yeah. So I think we probably want to um, get on Let's save that for the the section of the paper where I um I basically just <laughs> signal the death of all modal collapse arguments. Yeah, yeah. Basically, I think we should talk about that in there. Uh, okay. The the that. But yeah, why don't you jump to the second one then? Yeah. Uh, the, okay. Yeah. Okay. So the second reply is basically that um, like this is it's again going to be a parody argument. Like this problem is going to afflict everyone, even non-classical theistic models of God. Uh, and in fact, like any view of reality on which there's some kind of explanatory link between what's necessary in reality and what's contingent in reality. So let's focus on God, right? God has a necessary... Li- so this is non-classical theism that we're talking about. God has like a necessary layer, as it were, like all of his necessary features, um, the, the reasons of which he's necessarily possessed, and so on. And, you know, his attributes, his goodness... So God has his necessary layer, and God also has his contingent layer, as it were. So maybe his contingent intentions to actualize this particular world, God's contingent uh, willing of this particular creation, uh, and other sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So non-classical theists take it that there is some kind of, uh, and I use layer to be neutral. Like, uh, you know, some some non-classical theists don't think that what what classical theists say are parts are actually parts, right? Because classical theists are a little bit, admit it, you know, a little bit liberal, as it were, with a label of parts. Uh, And non-classical theists might not like that language. So that's why I say layer, uh, just for the audience. So (laughs) there's this necessary layer of God, and there's this contingent layer of God, as it were. But um, in some worlds, right, precisely because God's necessary layer is is necessary, and God's contingent layer is contingent, that contingent layer is cross-world variant, right? And that, that contingent layer of God is still dependent in, across those possible worlds on the necessary features of God, because mm-hmm. God's necessary features are more fundamental than and partly explain th- God's contingent features, right? God's contingent act of will is at least partly explained by things that are necessary about God, like his yeah. goodness and his His reasons of which he's necessarily aware of uh, and so on. So there's an explanatory connection or some kind of dependence relation between the contingent aspects of God and the necessary aspects of God. Um, and in that case, you, we could just run a parallel parody argument, right? Set, well, let, me, let me just run the argument. Premise seven star. Okay, remember last time we did premise seven. This is premise seven star. If the necessary layer of God could have given rise to phi, so some contingent layer, but does not actually give rise to phi, well, then N has some unactualized potential. And then we say that N could have given a rise to different contingent features of God, like different contingent acts, but did not actually do so. Uh, so N, it follows from those two premises, has unactualized potential. But mm-hmm. if N itself has a- unactualized potential, that means that N itself would be different across worlds. But that's absurd, right? N itself is everything that's necessary about God. Everything that's necessary about God could not have been different across possible worlds. Just definitely, yeah. Yeah, this is definitionally true. No one can deny this this premise. So, um, so then it would follow from those 
uh, if n has unactualized potential, well, then non-classical theism is false. There just couldn't, yeah, it's just absurd if n has unactualized potential. And so you can actually get to this that non-classical theism is false. Uh, yeah. And so um, that should really clue us in to there being some kind of something fishy here. Uh, and the fishiness is that um, n, n itself doesn't need to be cross-world different in order for it to be able to non-deterministically give rise to these different necessary features of God, as it were. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's, that's exact, that, that's how, that's what the non-classical theist has to say to get, to get around this. But that's exactly what the classical theist is going to say about God and creation, right? right. Uh, so, yeah, anyway. Well, that's a really good point. Um, I wonder, I, again, if this is jumping again, we'll just, we'll, we'll pause it and um, push, or we'll push it back. But if the classical theist does start enumerating, um, enumerating, um, just start expounding on what uh, the the layers of N that um, are reflected or are influencing the 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 layers of the contingent layers, and they say like reasons or something like that. Doesn't that then make the contingent not contingent anymore? Like, I think this is probably the the problem of intentional directedness. Maybe uh, am I am I getting ahead? Maybe, maybe. So they're probably just going to say like the non-classical theist. That is, they're probably going to say that either there isn't an indeterministic causal link there, but it's some kind of non-causal relation. Um, you know, so libertarians like to speak of or at least agent causal libertarians right. like to speak of like uh, the four relation. So F O R four relation, like an agent acts for the reasons, the reasons don't really cause the agent to act because it's the agent that does it. But the, the agent, the action is still like partially explained by the reasons because they enter into the four relation, which partly explains why the agent yeah. does the action. So anyway, it's necessitated by, but they're yeah. done. Uh, they're still like, I don't want to say grounded. Not, Everything you say. relevant. There you yeah. go. There you go. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. That's good. That's helpful. Okay. But now we could probably move on to like the death of Mona. Sorry. I, I love like the, the, <laughs> I was a little bit polemical in this, this, this uh, uh, paper because I was, I, I do kind of see it clearly that this is exactly how the debate has to play out. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, the death of Mona collapse or the death of Mona collapse arguments. So by Mona collapse arguments, people in this paper, I just mean, the ones that we've been considering in here, like ones based solely on God's being purely actual. Mm -hmm. Okay. And also based solely on God's being identical with God's creative act. Okay. I'm not talking about um, modal collapse arguments based on God's knowledge. Say I myself have defended a modal collapse argument based on God's knowledge in print. Um, and I'm working on some other like broadly modal collapse arguments that aren't the kind of modal collapse arguments that I'm criticizing here. They have to do with other facts about reality, like maybe facts about knowledge or other sorts of things. So bimodal collapse arguments, I, and I say this in the paper, uh, but bimodal collapse arguments, I just mean ones that we've been considering here, like the ones that are uh, based on God's merely being identical with his divine creative act and the ones based on God's being purely actual. So I don't think that either of those two facts alone entail modal collapse, which is contrary to the arguments that we've been considering here. So that, that out of the way, I wanted to say that I defend this conditional claim in the paper that classical or this biconditional claim rather mm -hmm. that classical theists can avoid modal collapse if and only if God's act indeterministically brings about its effect or effects. So um, basically, well, let, it, it's pretty, it's pretty trivial to show that um, 
one of the directions of the biconditional, right? So it's pretty trivial to show that um, if God's creative act deterministically produces its effect, that's pretty easy. That That's obviously going to entail modal collapse, right? Because um, classical theists grant that God is the cause of creation. And if causes necessitate their effects, then you have a necessary thing necessitating its effects. And by yeah. the distribution axiom of modal logic, you, there that gives you modal collapse. So yep. it's pretty easy to show that um, uh, that if you have ind- if you have deterministic causation, then you get modal collapse. In which case, if the classical theist, so let's contrapose that, right? If the classical theist is to avoid modal collapse, they have to embrace indeterministic causation. Right. So that that direction of the the biconditional is really easy. If classical theists are to avoid modal collapse, they have to accept that the link between God's act and his effects uh, is indeterministic. But let's go the other direction of the biconditional. If classical theists can accept, or if they do accept that the link between God and God's acts, if that's indeterministic, well, then I say they can avoid these modal collapse arguments. It, It furnishes them with a way to avoid them. Yeah. And we've seen that throughout this, right? Um, it's precisely because God's act indeterministically gives rise to its effects that all of those identity versions fail, right? Mm-hmm. Because that makes the relevant designations non-rigid. It makes it the case that the descriptions at play don't necessarily pick out God in all worlds in which God exists. Um, it's precisely and the necessity because, doesn't transfer over. Yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. So it's, preci- so it's precisely because you have that indeterminism there that uh, the, the intersubstitutability and, and identity versions fail. Uh, and similarly, the, the powers-based one fails because be- precisely because you have the indeterminism. It's precisely because the link there is indeterministic that you can have a necessary cause giving rise to a contingent effect. And the cause itself doesn't need to have some potential that goes actualized in one world and not in another, because the very nature of indeterministic causation is such that one and the same causal conditions obtain across worlds without any variance or any difference, any potential feature of it that's actual in one world or another. No, without that. But yet the effects of themselves can differ, right? Mm-hmm. And so... I show, or at least I take myself to show in this, art, in this article, that biconditional. It's, it's true that if the classical theist accepts indeterministic causation, or that indeterministic causal link between God's act and effects, his effects, then they do and can avoid modal collapse. And mm-hmm. similarly, if they can and do avoid modal collapse, if they are to avoid those arguments, they're going to have to be forced to accept indeterministic causation. So it's a biconditional. Um, yeah. That's that's basically so. And, that, and I say that that signals a kind of death of this. Right. Uh, yeah. You just can't get the modal collapse arguments up and running based solely on the identity of God and God's acts or based on causal powers. You just can't get those up and running with, if you have indeterministic causal link there. You could just like show that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, this whole time I've been thinking of different uh, like memes and stuff for what you're doing, and uh, the the hand buzzer is good. Another one's like you, you know you like you pull someone up into a dagger. I think the best <laughs> one might be like uh, the the kid the pink blob is getting bullied by the other blobs, and the yellow blob comes and helps him, but then he suplexes him. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> I, I love that uh, because because okay, I want to jump in on the. Uh, I, I wrote it down here as a as a question: indeterministic causation to the rescue because. There's these two new problems that come up, and this is why it's a fruitful death because it's fruitful for the uh, non-classical theists because right. now they might have some new tools uh, in their disposal. Yeah. Okay. So 
uh, I'm at 8% battery. So I can, my, and I know exactly where my charger is. I'm going to just have to run up and get it. And you're going to have to entertain the audience yeah, that's while good. I do that. <laughs> so um, you could just plug stuff or, hey, maybe yeah. plug my channel, you know, direct me to my Yeah, well, I don't go live. I could just cut it too, but um, oh, that's, 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 true. that's the difference. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I'm going to go get it and I'll <laughs> be go, back. Yeah, yeah, please. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll try to entertain you guys. If I don't, if this isn't working, I can just cut it. And this is the difference. why I don't go live anyways. Um, okay. So indeterministic causation to the rescue. This is what I like about Joe. He, he doesn't really have a dog in this fight. Cause like you, like you guys heard, he is actively producing other, uh, motor collapse arguments from knowledge. And I, I kind of think that the ones that he's working on, um, are more substantive. Not that these aren't substantive. Like I couldn't have done what Joe did in, refuting these so they're obviously substantive to some um, extent but in joe showing how it's mistakes in modal logic and and the metaphysics behind it he, he showed that they're not as substantive as the the knowledge ones so what he's getting at here is something that um i talked about with dr uh, Stephen nemesh when we talked about indeterministic causation in our podcast on uh simplicity and I had some misgivings with it then because it seems like God is creating for no reason. Um, but maybe Joe can can help me there or make it worse. So, Joe, I think I did a good job of entertaining them. Uh, if not, I will cut it, but no worries. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure you did. I have confidence. <laughs> well, can we start with uh, the problem of intentional directedness? Yeah. So like you said, you, you set it up really well. So I, I call it the fruit, the fruitful death because, you know, I've been arguing that these modal collapse arguments uh, have been killed. And but, you know, it's not it's not a fruitless death. The death is fruitful insofar as I think it can spawn further inquiry uh, that that people should take up. And I myself am working on some papers on like developing these particular problems. Like I said, like like I said earlier, like this paper itself arose from. Uh, me thinking about one of these fruits of the death of modal collapse arguments. And so, like, I'm going to be developing this other paper and so on. So, yeah, it's a fruitful death, I think. And the first problem is that, I don't know, this 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 indeterministic link that classical theists are going to, they have to accept if they want to avoid modal collapse. Uh, and since they're committed to God's freedom, I'm just going to henceforth say that they have to accept it. Um, this indeterministic link between God's act and effect and all the effects across all possible worlds in which God exists, saying that that's indeterministic, it's it's just really difficult to square in my mind with God's creative acts being intentional acts. Right. And so it, basically we normally think that it is essential, it's constitutive of intentional action that an intentional act or action is just it's directed towards a specific target definite outcome that the agent seeks to actualize like mm -hmm. i don't know like intentional actions what is an intentional action it's ultimately goal oriented it's an action that aims at a particular goal it's directed towards it it aims at it it's about it it targets it and it targets that thing as a distinct state of affairs i mean i don't know it just seems constitutive of intentional action i don't know what it would be to be an intentional action without having this kind of directedness toward a distinct thing that the agent is seeking to actualize yeah and this is intention with a t now folks so we've switched off of intention with an s and we're, we're going to the t here yes exactly yeah, yeah. i mean we're just we're switcherooing everything 
thing. You know, <laughs> I, at first I'm arguing for the death, and now I'm arguing for fruit. Yeah. yeah okay. So the right. switcheroo. Anyway, uh, but that that's a good um, that's a good clarification. So yeah, these intentional acts just seem of their very nature, right? It just seems constitutive of um, an intentional action that is directed towards its specific effect. Mm-hmm. But there's no, if you accept it, indeterministic link between all of God's acts, namely, or actually his one act with which he is identical across all possible worlds, uh, if you accept an indeterministic link there, there's nothing about God's act which makes it such that it's intentionally directed towards a particular creation in particular, right? It's like whatever creation happened to come into being, that act itself was not directed specifically towards that creation. It's not like uh, there's a distinct state of affairs that uh, God is intentionally aiming to actualize because had another creation obtained, nothing about God would have been different, right? And so God's act would have counted as an intentional act to actualize that world instead. And so it's nothing about this act in and of itself, about God's act, which makes it such that it's intentionally directed towards the production of that creation in particular, or that creation in particular, or that creation in particular, or no creation. It's like nothing about God's act would have been different. And, it, and so it's really hard to see how God's intentional act, even God's act of creation counts as an intentional act here, because nothing about the act itself is such that it targets or aims at the specific effect that it brings about mm-hmm. um, in in the respective world, um, and I mean, you can you can here's another way to think about it, right? So, like, suppose that God something about God's act were uh, like directed specifically towards, let's say, this particular creation that we inhabit. Well, given given what we saw earlier, um, nothing about God Himself, about God and His act, varies across worlds. So, suppose that a different creation came into being, or no creation came into being. Well, we've been supposing that God's act were intentionally, was directionally, intentionally directed towards this particular creation. So somehow in this world in which God exists alone, nevertheless, God's act is like specifically directed towards and targeted to bringing about this creation. But yet it didn't like, so it, 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 and so God would be like failing to actualize what he intended to act right like, and, well, and that might be a problem with 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 like omnipotence or something where it's like yeah, well, exactly. how, what, what explains the failure of there, there's no creation on the other side of this act like what's, yeah. what's happening here yeah and so and so you get an absurdity if on our original assumption we assumed that god's act was of itself like there was something about the act itself that was directed towards this particular creation um and so it fall it, it just follows that under classical theism there isn't such an intentional directedness towards this particular creation or so it seems and so yeah i, I just lose my gra- gra- like grip on how it could be god intentionally acting i mean it's like once you accept this super duper radical indeterminism, <laughs> like nothing about God varies across any of these worlds. And it's like, you, you've saved his freedom, but you've taken his intentionality. That's what it seems to me. I mean, yeah. it's like, like I admit that, yeah, I mean, God could be like directed toward himself across all worlds. Maybe, you know, like God aims at his own goodness or something like that. But it's yeah. like what we want to preserve is God's creative act being an intentional act to bring about that creation. But it's mm. like, it doesn't seem to me that you're going to be able to have that under classical theism precisely because of the modal collapse considerations that, that we've been adducing. Uh, you're going to have to accept that absolutely nothing, given the indeterminism, absolutely nothing about God varies across these worlds and about God's act. And so it's not as though the act is like um, directed towards that creation in particular. So I'm trying to think of how they, they could get out of this. I, 
I don't really care for libertarian free will as much as some people do. But <laughs> if 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 we were to say, okay, God is libertarian free will, and there's like a conditional like ability to create uh does a conditional well that that's kind of like coming from a compatibilist uh standpoint We're talking about conditional ability uh-huh. could and that's that's not libertarian free will yeah i don't know like i i see this so i mean you know cards on the table i see this as a very serious problem and i mean i don't claim that this is insuperable so like these mm-hmm. last two parts of my paper i'm urging people to go further like the earlier parts of my paper those are the ones that i do see crystal clearly this is exactly how the debate has to go uh, and so on like this is the dialectic that biconditional is true um and but these other two parts of the paper like i don't claim as much certainty in these as i do in the other yeah. in the other ones yeah, yeah. but but to my mind they do seem pretty powerful. So mm-hmm. I, I just have to say that. So, yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's really good. Okay. Uh, the next one, the Providence and uh, equally uh, tough, man. Yeah. Yeah. So like, think about what we had to conclude earlier. Um, well, well, okay. So the basic idea is that um, this way to avoid modal collapse, which again is the only way that classical theists can avoid it, might, might just pose some problems, some serious problems for God's being provident over which precise creation obtains and indeed whether or not creation obtains at all, right? We can, we just saw from our, our modal collapse discussion that you can fix absolutely all the facts about God himself. And yet, once you fix all those facts, still any creation whatsoever or no creation at all among the infinite array of possible creations can just they can spring into being with a dependence relation on god mm-hmm. and that just follows from the radical indeterministic causal link between god and god's effect that you need to avoid these kinds of modal class arguments right every fact solely about god is perfectly compatible with literally any creation whatsoever coming yeah. into being there's no like distinctive act by which god brings about any particular world and so it's like had any of the other infinite array of possible worlds creations come about nothing about god would have been different and yeah. so it's hard to see how god can like exert differential control across these worlds nothing about god is different so as to be able to control that it seems and it's like um and, and you know some people are, are just going to you know hand wave and wait like oh this is just the luck objecting to libertarianism right. like yada yada but it's like I've been looking at the luck literature and it's like even libertarians tend to agree that if you locate the luck downstream of what the agent does, like if, it, if it's if the link, if the indeterminism, if the luck there is located totally downstream from the intentions, the decisions, the actions, like all the actions that I perform. Well, then, yeah, I'm not going to be in control of what happens. Right. Like if I'm trying to control the temperature of a room, but like no matter what I do, no matter how I move my arms, no matter how I, like I could do jumping jacks, I could do anything, no matter what actions I do, intentions I form or anything, it could still indeterministically come about any temperature among an infinite array of temperatures. It seems as though I'm not even in control of that. Right. Um, and so if you locate the indeterminism downstream of my acts, including my intentions and everything about me, then that does indeed seem to threaten or collapse my control over the temperature, say, or whatever. Um, but by contrast, um, like so like and I was reading this paper by one one philosopher on the you know he and he was pointing out that like hey like even libertarians tend to accept this point about the downstream indeterminism it's they tend to think that well no if, if the indeterminism say is more upstream and it's between your 
like um, your deliberative process and then the forming of the intention, or say uh, you're forming the intention and you know or whatever. Uh, they tend to think that um, that is not as devastating as uh, it being more downstream. But it's like the classical theist precisely has this thing in the downstream position, right? No matter what God on God's end does. Any creation would could come yeah. into being. It's exactly like the temperature case that I just specified, right? No matter what I do, you can fix all the facts about me, the way I wiggle my fingers. You, you could even introduce, you know, some kind of temperature thing that I try to I try to turn it, but still, any indeterministic link could come about between me and the temperature. And surely, in that case, I'm not responsible for it. Um, and yeah, and so it just seems to me that this this classical theistic position on which this indeterminism is posterior to God's acts, like what God does, like everything about God himself, his intentions and so on, everything on God's end. It's just so hard to see for me how God could be provident over which creation obtains and indeed whether or not creation obtains. So, And continued providence, um, concurrence in, in as reality plays out, it's like he would have to be doing the same actions, which is all one act anyways, even if no world had come about. And so then he's exercising providence over no world. And that's because I think that would be the consistent move here to say, if you want to say, well, no, he's yeah, nothing changed about God. So he's exercising providence and concurrence and governance here now. So he must have, if, if this hadn't been the world that, that popped out indeterministically, another one, even if it was no world, he would still have to be doing those same things in no, I, I shouldn't say no world in no universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. At least on God's end, right? So, right, like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can, you know, there is a kind of ambiguity in like what God does because we could refer to, like, we saw that with the powers based argument, right? Um, like, God can do something different in the sense of something different coming about with a dependence relation on God indeterministically. But mm-hmm. on God's end, he can't do anything different. Like, right. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just tough. It's tough to see how, um, how God could be provident in that case. And like, listen, even in this temperature case, if I had, let's say I have like reasons to actualize each particular one of those infinitely many temperatures. And let's say I even had a desire, which like for each one, like I have some desire for 42.2. I have some reason to actualize that. You know, I have some reason to actualize 1,100 and you know, or 1,212, I have some reason to actualize a temperature and, you know, temperature, that's just, just a stand in. I mean, I have some reason to, to actualize a temperature of 10 to the power of Google to the power of Google. Like, even if I have some reason in each case and like, it's still the case that you can fix absolutely all the facts about me. And yet somehow like one of these things pops into being, it's like, right. I mean, yeah, sure. Maybe I had even still had some reason and desire to do it. And so, um, but like the point is, is just that there's this radical indeterminism between everything about me and about the particular effect that, that comes into being. And, uh, again, I don't claim that this is some kind of insuperable difficulty, but it's like, I don't know, just consult your like super strong intuitions, people like, uh, it just seems to me to be really difficult. Yeah. Yeah, man. So it's, it's tough. It's really good. It is fruitful because now you've given us more things to think about. And, uh, yeah, and yeah. I, no, that, sorry to interrupt you, but I like, I think these are the ways that the debate can progress, right? Like this mm. is how these are the aspects of the modal collapse debate that people should now be moving on to and thinking about and publishing on. Right. I like, I want this paper to serve the debate really. Like I want people to take up these problems to, to, to like dive into this kind of distinction between downstream indeterminism and upstream indeterminism and apply that to the models of God and so on. It's like, um, 
yeah, like there's so much here for future yeah. work to do. And so like I want to serve debates as well. It seems like you may have you may have forced it out of um the intense intentional with an s uh conversation into more of a conversation of well uh in, intentional with a t and direct yeah, metaphysics and, i'm taking right, it metaphysics out of, and, out of and free will in, right yeah yeah free will metaphysics uh intentionality maybe philosophy of mind type stuff which is kind of cool man if you do like i think you did but if this gains a broader audience hopefully it does on my gigantic channel and everyone will see it uh then yeah we will you will have moved the conversation in a really serious way. And then also mm-hmm. like you are, you're still working on the, uh, the knowledge argument, um, mm-hmm. motocleps argument too. So it's just saying this one stream needs to, or, or fork or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah. 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 And again, yeah. For people like when I, I, and I point this out in a footnote in the paper, but it's like, when I say motocleps arguments, I just mean the arguments that purport to demonstrate this kind of fatalistic conclusion merely from God's either being identical with his act of creation or with God's having no potentiality whatsoever and no potentiality for being otherwise or doing otherwise on his end. So yeah, that, that's what I mean by Well, that's not as catchy of a title though. That's not as Exactly. As, uh... <laughs> like, oh, by that, I mean like, yeah. The title. <laughs> Imagine I... that footnote as your title. <laughs> exactly. Just this paragraph as a title. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But no, I do the title, The Fruitful Death of Motocolops yeah. Arguments. I love it. Yeah, it's so good. Well, dude, this has been awesome. I actually didn't think we were going to make it to an hour because I looked at like 30 minutes. We covered so much because you talk so fast. But we did it, man. We actually made it. We, <laughs> this yeah. is good. Yeah, Thanks that- so much for your time, Joe. This is this has been huge. Again, dude, I'm I'm not blowing smoke over you, but I love this paper. I think it's really, really good. I'm going to read it a couple more times. And maybe I'll try and, and take up those those last two. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of wishy-washy when it comes to classical theism and more mm-hmm. and part of the reason is is guys like uh like you and mullins kicking me around and and it depends on the day and um some of the classical guys saying hey the church has always believed this stop doing that what are you doing <laughs> so i got people pulling at me from every direction but i appreciate it man and i, and I love the way you've uh changed the conversation mm-hmm. and yeah i think just the best way to, to go about that tossing and tur- turning is is just to stick to the intellectual virtues you know it's mm-hmm. just to keep the kind of intellectual humility and to, to recognize that, yeah, there are going to be considerations on both sides and mm-hmm. um, not to call one side irrational or other sorts of things, right. but to, to keep an, you know, uh, an open mind and a love for truth and, and um, just an intellectual humility to, yeah. to recognize that one might be wrong and to, to explore the issues on both sides. So, yeah, I love, I love making people bite bullets and, uh, I've grown, I'm growing to love biting bullets myself and saying, look at how weird that is. Isn't that weird <laughs> that I believe that? I have to believe that. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's awesome. All right, man. So, um, folks, this is going to have to do it. Uh, we've given you a lot here. Uh, check out that paper. Uh, Joe, we didn't say where the paper is going to be though. We're, we're, we're... Oh, I'll, I'll, uh, send you, um, a Google, a shareable Google drive, totally shareable for everyone to read for a preprint. So you can put that in the description. Oh, sweet. Okay. Oh, what, how about where did it get picked up at though? Oh, where it is at a journal. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's at the international journal for philosophy of religion. Okay. Sweet. IJPR, sweet. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's important to to note as well. That's a that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, so it's not like in this uh, <laughs> in the know, blog of yeah right <laughs> yeah or like in in some uh, Arizona under you know like undergrad like you know no it's yeah, yeah it's definitely a those are the ones I'm looking to publish in yeah yeah mm-hmm. um, all right man so so thanks again this has been huge uh, this has been Parker's Pensies and as always all glory to God. <laughs>